you hear that intro music, that soft intro music, warming you up for the week in sports cars, we have on the other end of the telephone, the mighty Graham Goodwin, he, the editor of DailySportsCar.com. On this end of the phone, I don't know what I am, but I am Marshall Pruitt, and this is my little podcast, and we talk about sports cars. I cover North American goods. Graham is a man of international flavor. Graham is also a man who was at the Rolex 24 at Daytona a little over a week ago, where Convergence was announced. Boy, do we have a lot of great questions to get to in a compact episode, my friend, because you have things to do. And today is also known as American Christmas. The Super Bowl is coming. Tell us how you're doing. Tell folks what the heck is Convergence happens to be for those who might not know. Say thank you to our sponsors, Graham, and let's get rocking and rolling. Let's rock it and roll. Let's first, though, say thank you. Thank you again to Cooper Tires and the wonderful people at the Justice Brothers. Their continued support. Good evening uh, from the UK. Uh, it's very dark out there, but I'm looking forward to just a couple of weeks out of things. Uh, after this, you'll be getting Stephen Kilby on next week's episode. He's, uh, well, be uh, tucked up in bed now, having watched the Bathurst 12 hours over the last 24 hours uh, a massive win there for Bentley and I'm sure with kangaroos on track and with all sorts of major incidents mercifully without uh, human harm um, that uh, you'll have lots of questions for next week's show on that front Convergence though what a huge story that's been MP Um, a massive press conference yes we expected it yes we've been telegraphing this for some time but there was something extraordinary about just watching it happen in front of us. Uh, those faces together, John Doonan, Ed Bennett, Jim France, um, the Pierre Fion and Gerard Neveu and that top table uh, announcing that we are going to have one class of top uh, prototype racing from the uh, 21-22 uh, WC and the 2022 uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. And that, of course, is the starting gun for all sorts of other shenanigans. And uh, not just who's coming, who's not. What happens to LMP2? My view is that will explode in a very good way. But then beyond that, the next big question is about GT racing. What happens to GTLM, GTE Pro? And uh, there, I think we've got another potential big story yet to kind of emerge in the coming years but uh, i know we've got some heck a bunch of questions we do and i actually on the topic of gt convergence i forgot you and i should have huddled up on that before we started recording here heard a good little nugget about that so we're gonna have to develop that into a little story you also mentioned the names of the folks directly involved in getting convergence done been interesting to watch one of the names who you did not mention make a very concerted effort to ensure his name is seen in print in the media uh, to further burnish his legacy, I guess. It's been a fun and interesting week, my friend. Speaking of fun and interesting, we normally do this show, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, in a tightly wound, bucket-like fashion. Start (laughs) off with one category, Shift to the next, shift to the next. Going to do that a little bit differently this week. The vast majority of the questions we have are convergence-related, knowing that this obviously applies to both the ACO, IMSA, and WEC, 
we're just going to open with those items and then move on to the rest. So, Graham Goodwin, where shall we start with our lovely convergence questions? Oh, and by the way, we're starting hashtag convergence car as the name for the new class, <laughs> not LDM, LHDM, L Lewis Hamilton driver man, L eight. I must admit, though, the the little Twitter chain we had going on with all the various possible alternative uh, actual explanations for the acronym LMDH. That was a blast. Uh, But nonetheless, where shall we start on this blended hypercar LMDH type topic coming our way? Well, let's start with exactly that from Right Turn Lover. What's LMDH? Is it just DPI 2.1 or the combined class including hypercar? If uh, combined, can we call it all car? Um, it's not surprising that people have been confused by this. Uh, we are going to get, I believe, two things at Sebring MP. One is going to be we're going to hear more about the technical regulations. And two is we're going to hear what they're going to call the combined class. That's what I believe we're going to hear in another flurry of activity, God bless them, at uh, Super Sebring in, well, just about seven weeks' time. But um, it, for me, LMDH is very much, um, it, it is... Uh, DPI 2.0. It's not 2.1. It's 2.0. The big difference here, unless I've missed the devil in the detail, um, is that now those cars are going to be eligible other than in the EMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, correct? Yes. The plan is this is meant to be blurred lines transfer across what was once a very hardened battle line. So with your hypercar, and although that's another great topic, Graham, how many people are going to actually build hypercars? The ACO WEC defined hypercar. Uh, and I mean build as in create from scratch, not the well, second the- option, which is take your road car, hypercar, uh, supercar type vehicle and modify it to those rules. But who is actually going to create something in an autoclave? a standard LMP one style prototype just built to these new hypercar regulations. How many will still go down that road? We know the answer. We know that there's uh, at least one in motion with Toyota, but what will this convergence do for those who are planning to do that? Uh, Maybe not for the start of the formula here in September, just a matter of months away, but will this cause some to say, you know, maybe this, LMDH thing is the formula to build for, and we're just going to now push the target back to 2022. Well, rather oddly, it's exactly the question asked a little further down our list from Chris Elfby. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Uh, I think the answer here is Toyota are committed. They've told us that without a shadow of a doubt. We'll come to Aston Martin in a moment because we've got uh, it's a, a bigger number topic of people there. Yeah. It's a bigger topic. But um, Peugeot, I cannot see anything other than LMDH in their uh, in their future. By the way, LMDH, something about that. Forget the kind of slight farce about the DH side of things. It just doesn't scan, does it? It doesn't work as a as a four letter acronym at all. Um, I think they're going to have to come up with something a bit better than that to, to move forward with. But no, I think it's Toyota, Glickenhaus hearing um, potentially that uh, the Bicolis program may have gone uh, gone quiet. No massive surprises there, but that is new news, if you like, over the last week or so. 
which leaves you with the Aston Martin Valkyrie. And um, there's a you're right. There's a wider story about Valkyrie. The worry is it's been extremely quiet. They have recommitted with the new emergency funding uh, that's come uh, in part through Lawrence Stroll and his organisation to the Valkyrie road car. But uh, what might we see in terms of racing intent? There has been literally not one word about it. But it may be they've been waiting for this emergency funding and new structure to be in place before we uh, hear next. Every time I've asked, I keep being told exactly the same thing, which is we have nothing to actually announce because there's been no change from what we told you earlier. Uh, let's wait and see. That is my first wait and see, by the yes, way. Yes, hashtag let's wait and see. Also wanted to throw in for our dear friend, Right Turn Lover, who opened the show with a question, who during the Rolex 24 um, decided to respond in an interesting note that I made about being impressed by Kyle Busch uh, and his pace. Uh, at the end of the race, looking at the four drivers in the car that Kyle, the overall four drivers in the car of which Kyle was one with the AVS Lexus program, Kyle Busch second fastest, uh, directly wow. behind Jack Hawksworth, Jack's fastest team leader, car leader, everything leader, 143.131. Yes, this is in the report uh, shared with me by our good pal Lee Driggers, who uh, helps with IMSA's timing and scoring. Uh, Bush was P2 on the team at a 146.421 uh, Parker Chase young talent who's dedicated uh, his life so far to this craft 146.634 Michael De Quesada also young rising talent sports car person 146.892 so yes in this car one of which uh, Kyle really is not a sports car person uh, interesting how a person like this doing this for the first time Second fastest in a car filled with people who do this left and right turning for a living. I'm petty. That's why I just mentioned that, by the way. Uh, All right. Let's go to. All right. Let's go to Doug Bonham. Boil it down nice and simple, Graham. Do we think who do we think will commit to LMDH on either side of the Atlantic? And who is rumored to be most interested in joining this rule set? If memory in analyzing of the news story serves forward. Porsche and McLaren may use the platform in both series, while I can imagine Mazda stepping up from the U.S. only operation to maybe utilizing an LMDH for both IMSA and WEC. It's the question, isn't it? And for me, it's always been quite simple. There'll be those of you with the regular listeners that will be bored with this this little analysis, but I'll go through it one more time just for just for shits and giggles. Um, the 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 key is. Not just how many cars you can have at Daytona, not just how many cars you're going to have at Le Mans, but having sustainable numbers of teams that will commit to a full series, both in North America and in the WEC. So sustainable numbers in both products and coming together for whatever are determined to be the blue ribbon events that become the, uh, the, 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 the massive events that these could become. So who do we think? Well, okay, we've talked hypercar already. If things as are they should be from 21-22, we should still have Aston Martin and Toyota, all things being equal. Let's wait and see, but I think we can certainly uh, ink uh, Toyota in there. Um, I think Porsche are very close indeed to committing to this program, and my belief would be that the Porsche program would be a WEC program with an alternative VAG brand in North America, and coming together for the big races. Um, 
McLaren, if they're doing anything, I think would be a WEC commitment from them. But of course, this now gives them the opportunity to cherry pick the very best of the North American races as well. And that's a, a massive thing. The party that's been that uh, you mentioned, but has uh, been, uh, been quietest, I'd be keen to what you uh, hear and think about this one, is Ford. Ford, extremely quiet since the convergence announcement was actually made. Let's presume for a moment, though, we get three to four of the ones we've just mentioned. Um, the answer is that's a perfectly sustainable WEC top class without uh, mentioning, by the way, the potential for privateer cars. We'll come to that in a, in a second. Over at IMSA, um, well, let's wait and see what happens with General Motors. There was an impassioned plea from Wayne Taylor in the post uh, Rolex 24 um, press conference uh, saying that he'd love to take Cadillac to uh, Le Mans. And I think we'd all love to see that happen with, uh, with GM actually committing. Uh, keep hearing good things that Acura are likely to stay. Similarly, from Mazda, might we see either of those two brands, whether it's Honda or Mazda, committing to something a bit more global? No immediate signs that that's the case, but who knows what might happen in pursuits of a success at Le Mans. Beyond that, MP, this is your bailiwick. Which of the cards up your sleeve do you want to reveal at this point? Well, let's see. We have a situation where I believe Lamborghini was preparing to jump in with something DPI 2.0 related, I believe, and this is just things that I've heard rumblings of, not claiming them to be accurate, but at least feel strong enough to at least mention it, uh, had heard that it sounded like Lamborghini was coming. Lamborghini owned by the uh, Volkswagen Audi group. And as Convergence started to look like it was going to be a real thing, Lamborghini was pulled off the table as the VAG brand to do this. So I would say that if this is going to happen within VAG, it would be on the Porsche front. I think what might be coming down the pipeline for GT future regulations, etc., could shape that decision leaning in the uh, LMDH direction. So that's one that I would feel pretty strongly about that actually happening. Would say that if we look at Ford, we know how much they said that they wanted to get in with a hybrid but a hybrid that was powerful and meaningful and so on and so forth and knowing that for what's going forward that i'm aware of that's not what we're going to have and this is something where i believe that could be a big question mark uh, i just i don't believe we have a case where uh, what they want, what they need is necessarily going to be provided. So uh, just don't know where that's going to lead. I do fear that the spec hybridization and it being a lowish power solution is everything Ford said they did not want and would drive them away. So of all the things about Convergence, Graham, who might get in with this LMDH uh, situation Ford's the one I'm most concerned about, but that concern is not founded on them weighing in with me after 
uh, convergence was announced. It's just everything that was finalized for what's coming doesn't tick the boxes that they were looking for. Uh, continue to have full faith that Acura will be in. They're going to have a pretty significant decision to make here at the end of the year. Their three-year contract with Acura Team Penske is up. We know that we expect them to stay. We, I have no question that Acura will be in DPI come 2021. We just also know that unless they sign a one-year contract with somebody, which would be a little bit strange, the next contract that they sign would, again, in theory, have them continuing to play in IMSA's top class with this new formula coming online for 2022. So that's a pretty interesting one right there. Uh, Beyond that, I mean, McLaren you mentioned, Zach Brown, uh, CEO of the McLaren Racing side, has been very forthright in mentioning that as long as McLaren is here in North America with a racing program, of which they are now co-entrance in an IndyCar effort, that also doing an IMSA program would not fit their marketing goals. If we're ever going to be in the space in North America in a major racing series, we don't see any real value for being in two. That's probably owing to their size. They're not a giant uh, brand volume-wise. So those jump out immediately. Cadillac is going to be an interesting one, knowing that they do have some new road cars coming, Graham. Uh, They've mostly become a SUV-type company not so much a super high-performance multi-vehicle range of things that you would then attach to Cadillac and performance. Granted, it's not as if they couldn't. If the Auris Russian limousine company can brand (laughs) an LMP2 in Europe to try and suggest their performance brand, I guess there's nothing stopping Cadillac from continuing, uh, even if most of what they make is uh, big, giant people carriers. Um, Beyond that, again, I need to catch up with Mazda to get their feeling on this. They actually reached out and said, hey, we'd like to talk, so I need to do just that. Hard to say, again, I don't want to make it sound like dodging a question at all because that's simply not the case. There's a number of brands that we've heard could be very interested. BMW is another one. Ferrari is another one. We know those two brands were in the most recent technical working group meeting with IMSA. We know that Ferrari, again, uh, the, from what I've heard, um, they were more keen on doing an entire car compared to just dropping a motor in the back of something. Has this plan that now formalizes the same four chassis manufacturers, uh, that being Delara, Liger, Areca, and Multimatic, does that now boot Ferrari out of the conversation or could they possibly want to remain BMW as I mentioned they are coming up at a place we would imagine Graham by 2022 where the current BMW M8 GTE might be at the end of its uh, lifeline and might need to do something different would also say Hyundai we know was a first time participant in that most recent meeting keep hearing that that's an option they're pursuing, but not the only one they're considering. So there's a lot of names. Peugeot, you've already mentioned. Toyota is going to be in. 
Aston Martin uh, as well. That's not on the LMDH side, but you know we've got some momentum but, here. But the thing is, but 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 it could be. I think this is the point. I mean, one of the uh, the strands with Valkyrie. Look, f- uh, to all intents and purposes, we believe until we're told different, Valkyrie is on track. Uh, am I confident? Not very at the moment. Uh, but we believe that Valkyrie is on track. Could they decide that actually? Um, if the hypercar budget is just too much in their current uh, situation, they might go with the Valkyrie LMDH. They could. It's a straight answer, and that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, it's At the moment, it's game on. I think it's going to be an incredibly interesting next few weeks and very few months because for people to make it for the WEC – uh, 21, 22, those decisions are going to have to be made really pretty immediately. And bear in mind, in addition to that, the redesign of the chassis is going to have to be very quick indeed because they're going to have to accommodate against what we understand, not just that hybrid drive system. So it's a fundamentally different chassis from the ones that are currently um, you know, out there. This Orica 07 chassis will not carry over. It will be uh, directly told by David Flory and by Hugh DeShonak a new safety cell uh, for that car, for the new uh, Orica. It f- effectively is the starting gun for a new breed of LMP2 as well with the facility to uh, develop other emerging technologies onto that same chassis. John Doonan, I think it was at the press conference uh, MP that actually said LMDH might be Le Mans, Daytona, hydrogen. Um, you know, these these are the chassis that could be with us for a long, long time uh, moving forward. And who's to say that one of the chassis manufacturers that might be struggling at the moment might not just attract a sugar daddy um, to to uh, to relaunch that. Uh, chassis. I don't think we're going to get into exclusivity, but if you're looking for an opportunity to get to jump on your colleagues, then why wouldn't you go in with an LMP2 chassis manufacturer and get that thing done in exactly the way you want it to be done in a bespoke fashion uh, for your LMDH program that just happens to be legal and happens to be able to be races in LMP2 as well. I think we've got some really interesting things to come out of this debate. I would say the thing that I really love most about this, Graham, is there's absolute confidence that a major brand that is not currently in IMSA's DPI formula will be there for 2022, will oh, yeah. announce this uh, probably end of the year uh, here. Uh, Daytona at the latest, 21. But this is going, I, I'm absolutely confident this is going to result in some very positive new developments. And I do believe that it won't be long before we start to hear concrete plans, not necessarily publicly announced. Mm-hmm. Many budgets, though, start to get formalized midsummer, really get pushed through to go forward here in August or September as these major international auto brands, even domestic, but major auto brands uh, decide this is something they're going to do and then get ratified into their uh, you know, upcoming budgets and whatnot. I think this is going to be a bit of a domino effect in how it plays out, just because it's how we've seen this happen in other series, other formulas in the past where you go, oh, that actually makes pretty good sense. You've got budget minded way of going about this you're not letting folks run amok with crazy expenditure again any manufacturer can spend all they want but this is a case where the rules do not let you go wild 
for no, you know, unless you just want to be an ass about your spending. And so I think this is just one of those things like we've seen before where, oh, okay, well, you're actually going to do this. This LMDH thing sounds sustainable, affordable, and international since we can take it to Le Mans. In theory, if uh, the FIA ratifies it uh, for inclusion in the WEC, that would happen as well. Uh, but we do, do know that the link back to Le Mans with the ACO and IMSA signing this directly means that this is going to give manufacturers a chance to play throughout North America. IMSA's already said, we, you can do that. It's our series. We approve. No one else has to agree on that but us. And we know that uh, Pierre Fiel and his group have said, pipeline, pipeline is open to Le Mans. All we have to do is wait to hear what the FIA says on the WC angle. That's the thing I believe is just going to open the doors here. Not saying we're going to have 15 manufacturers playing in uh, whatever this class is called in LMDHs, but I would be very surprised if we don't double the amount of manufacturers we have right now. Totally agree. Absolutely agree. We've got a couple of questions, MP, that are sort of similar, and it, it's a neat uh, kind of dovetail with with the point you just made there. Alex Eichmiller is one of the two, and I'm just looking for the other one. I think it was Jacques and Bame. It was Jacques and Bame uh, is asking, and this is actually all about um, – IMSA entrance at the Le Mans 24 Hours. And, of course, that's been a bone of contention in recent years. There's those two um, entrants that come with the the Gentleman Driver Trophies. uh, uh, Plus, of course, the GTE Pro teams have been welcomed uh, by the ACO, albeit with increasingly threatening tones around the Corvette Racing uh, effort not being a WEC uh, entry. But what will have to change? I think the answer is there's going to have to be a completely different set of sporting regulations for the Mon 24 Hours because I cannot see, cannot see on two fronts that the position we're currently in is sustainable moving forward. That is effectively the selection committee for the ACO. It's in their gift. Here, this is a proper new partnership. Um, And I think on two fronts, one in terms of the politics of this moving forward, that's got to change. It's simple as that. It has got to change. But two, the commercial aspects of it moving forward. Here's the reality. Le Mans, uh, by 2023, the centenary race will have 65 cars starting that race. We'll have 62, maybe 63 uh, for some of the races leading up to 2023. The ACO correctly want that centenary race and beyond to be a brand new golden era and it can be and it should be to to sustain that you've really got to move away from this master and servant culture that's existed around uh, the Le Mans 24 hours you've got to get to the stage where those manufacturers and to a to greater or lesser extent as well segueing into another question that's in there the privateers at the top end of this class, because there are going to be privateer cars in MDH, make no mistake about that, um, that they need more confidence for even the levels that you're going to be investing for those cars, that you're going to have the very biggest races on your program. That means in uh, the point at which they sign up and say, we are going to do a full season of the MSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, let's say for the sake of arguing, I don't know, Lexus have got to be able to, to, to guarantee that program will include Le Mans should they choose to have it by rights as part of the season entry for 
the uh, IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship. That's got to change. There's no doubt in my mind that that's got to change. If and when it does change, then could we be talking about a top class at Le Mans that has 15, 20 more entries? Yes, we could. And I'm not saying very easily, but you can certainly see from what both I and MP have laid out uh, today and what we heard from others, including John Doonan and Gerard Naveau in the podcast that we captured um, at Daytona, you can see that they can very clearly see the roadway towards that. That then opens the next debate. I know that's questions further on. But right now, what we're looking to see is technical regulations following on from that to get these things secure. We need to see the sporting regulations once they're both in, in, in place. Then these teams and manufacturers can have the confidence to say, let's go racing. Would also throw in to here, Graham, that if, as you mentioned, we do need to have a rewrite between how the ACO and IMSA work together, uh, whether it's the auto invites again for the pro-am champions and whatnot. I don't think, I don't think this is going to be so much of the slog that it has been in the past. And maybe we should spin this out. And I apologize if there's a question in here, I I missed on the topic and that's about the WEC, the, trying to think of how to phrase this correctly because this is not meant to be a a shotgun moment where everybody gets hit with the little pellets the fia has been the rod stuck in the gears that has shut down so many of the well-intentioned well-meaning scenarios for IMSA and the ACO to do things together in recent years. I'm not saying it's been all the FIA, but on more than one occasion where, Hey, they just said they're going to do something and their car is going to be able to come over here and do this, or we're going to be able to work together closely as I understand it and have understood it. The FIA side has been the one frankly stepping on everyone else's members and making these things not happen so this isn't meant to be some sort of over uh amplification of this scenario but we do need to maybe park for just a moment and thanks again jacob for this question we do need to park for a moment and say if you read the press release that was sent out that was combed over (laughs) for days by the ACO and IMSA that also included WEC CEO Gerard Naveau, right? This says ACO and IMSA agree. WEC wasn't mentioned. FIA was not mentioned. Person in charge of the WEC was there, though. Hmm. I, I do seem to recall on this very show one where voices a lot like yours and a lot like mine uh, <laughs> mentioned earlier somewhere at some point in 2019 graham that meeting had taken place about this very thing that has come to pass hey what if the aco and imsa just say you know what f everybody else we're doing our own thing and if you want to come on board cool please do we'd love to have you but we own Daytona, and we own Le Mans. We 
can do whatever the hell we want. We don't need a third party to say yay or nay. If we want to do an international series, we could do it ourselves as well. Be easier to do it under FI sanction. I get that, but the FI doesn't own these tracks. I mean, again, just saying, there's a lot of things that happen in the world and motor racing that the FI does not govern. Let's just streamline this and get the roadblock out of the way. So if you read this release, you look at the words that were finally crafted, chosen intently by both sides. They said that these cars will be able to race in 2022 throughout the world. Major, all the fame tracks, right? I don't think they cited every single track, Graham, on the WC calendar. But if you read between the lines, the ACO and IMSA in their press release that did not include the words F, uh, the letters FIA or WC in the signatories of this agreement, they said this is something they're going to be able to do without saying exactly, or maybe they even did say exactly, in the WEC. This is Jim France, Pierre Fion, more or less, I don't know if I want to say challenging, but something pretty close think, to challenging, think, saying, hey, I'll we're doing right. this. You want to get in? Because if you don't, that's fine, but that's your choice. Um, there's something it, here that a, we need to recognize, yes? I, I agree. I mean, I think what it is here is... Those gentlemen and the organizations that they uh, represent and control basically saying, we've come through a hell of a time here and we're not at a great deal of help. And this is what we've got. And it's not only our best shot, it's our only shot. And, you know, this bus is leaving. You want to be on or you want to be off. And I think we have a moment coming now. There is a World Motorsport Council in early March. Um, And let's hope that what we've got here is that unenlightened self-interest has been parked by a number of people involved in this one. I'm going to speak up on behalf of one person in a moment, by the way. Um, It's been parked for a moment, and reality has actually dawned here. It's time to see that from the FIA. It's time to see that actually the interest of those bodies and those fantastic events and a massive fan base that follows them is taken into account and that we're not going to get caught with political games about Formula One or about Formula E or about Formula anything, that here's an opportunity for manufacturers with a vested interest in endurance racing to have something that is affordable at a time when not a lot is. And I think you're absolutely spot on. There is a moment right now. Heads have been turned by a number of things. Heads have been turned by VW Gates. Heads have been turned by Formula E. Heads have been turned by Stefan Rattel's uh, ability to bring together his IGTC with absolutely no FIA uh, involvement whatsoever. A credible manufacturer-based, albeit through customer sports, global program. And I think the challenge to the, F, uh, to the FIA right here from uh, the ACO, from the uh, uh, from IMSA, and for that matter, from, if you like, the OCO end of the WEC in the hands of Gerard Defoe, who I will mention, by the way, Gerard has been pushing for this. He's, he's one of those guys. Gerard's a good man. Yeah, well, you know, when, when we've had the, if you like, a lot of the kind of the commentary, the internet commentary about this one, it's tended to be the French versus the Americans. It genuinely, we've been saying it time and again. Has there been aspects of that? Of course there have. But it's not been everybody. And I can tell you right now, um, I'm, I'm not giving away terribly many confidences, but I can tell you that this is well over a year after 
um, me having at least two conversations with Gerard where he was saying, I think we've got to look at this and look at it very seriously moving forward with or without Hypercar. Um, he's been a firm advocate for exactly why we got to um, on that Friday press conference at Daytona. And I saw nothing but happy faces in that room. Wouldn't it be great if we had them happier still at Sebring with the regulations and superbly happy when we get to June and the Le Mans 24 hours where tell you what there's a global platform for a couple of manufacturer announcements that's where i expect to actually see the first people committing and let's put a little capper on this topic here graham i 100 percent expect the fi world motorsport council to say yes lmdh hypercar hashtag convergence car is the new uh, class name maybe whatever it is you bet that's coming to the wec in 2022 or what 21 i guess technically is when it would start yeah 2022 um, yeah 100 we're in let's do it you got it because if they don't <laughs> hey you know that top class where the manufacturers yeah. spend the most money um they're gonna go do their own thing so uh, i again man i do love this because i'm a little devil i do love this because <laughs> this is the aco and imsa the two people that hold all the power here playing chicken with the fia saying all right this is us we're doing it if you want this we are welcome to it but if you don't well we're gonna do our own thing anyways and you're gonna lose your top class and potentially your lmp2 class as well because those four manufacturers those four chassis manufacturers they've signed this agreement with us correct <laughs> a little yeah, bit of power play it, man this is it, this is uh, and it's good this is dirty i, think, or I don't know if dirty I think but it's, i think it's i think it's healthy for the fia the fia clunky organization long overdue frankly root and branch reform uh, in my personal view, as very many of these long-established sporting bodies um, are and have been, and we've seen some of that, you know, around what's happened in athletics, what's happened in, in soccer, in your language incorrectly, football uh, in ours correctly. Um, but we've seen that. I know you've had the same with some of the major U.S. sports uh, governing bodies. You know, it's it's is time for you know for people who've got the rights of these major events to turn around and say, guys come on you know this has to be a lot less clunky it has to be easier you have to listen to what we and our customers are telling us and yeah the, the proof of the pudding is going to be right now the next tester is what happens as a direct result of this in gt racing because that's coming and it, it does doesn't it next up on the agenda as if they didn't have enough on their plates, is what happens now with GT racing. You know, between us, MP, we've mentioned most, if not all, of the existing GTLM in US-speak and GTE Pro in WEC-speak uh, GT manufacturers. There are only now, is it four, five of them, isn't it? Five. Uh, so we've got the three in the US with uh, BMW, uh, with the brand new and fabulous uh, Corvette C8R and the Porsche. The Porsche, of course, also races in the WEC alongside the Ferrari. 
and alongside Aston Martin. Now, if all, any or all of those manufacturers go off into an LMDH uh, program, that means that that's potentially going to compromise pretty immediately a factory program in GT. And some way a little further down the line, the GTM offshoots of that. So already one of the big topics of conversation uh, at Daytona and beyond that in that room was basically what happens next. And I think pretty much everybody agrees that we're talking uh, effectively what happens next in terms of GT3 um, and the uh, the manufacturing customer sports involvement that might come with that. And that, again, opens up a whole new area of discussion. It's been spotted by a number of our uh, our listeners. We've got from uh, Sam Abul Samid, uh, who asks about uh, it being time to address uh, that issue. Uh, we've got Eric Hartrader saying much the same. Do you think prototype conversions has increased the chances for GT conversions there? Um, and the guy in the grumpy bear suit, uh, De Ruslar, um, who says, what do you think is the greater obstacle to GT, GT3 convergence, technical regs or the business models that focus, if you like, on customer racing? I'll add in one further one before we get into this, just to clear it up. Uh, George Allegretta says, does GT500 Class 1 offer a potential platform for GT convergence, given there are five major manufacturers involved, two robust series that use the formula? I'll say right now, I don't think DTM is all that robust. Uh, yes, BMW is involved on that front. Audi too. But then of the three uh, manufacturers in the Japanese Super GT Championship, two of them, in one way or another, are already involved in LMDH or hypercar, those being Honda slash Acura and uh, Toyota slash Lexus. Uh, so I think the answer there is uh, I see your five and give you three back and – Two of those aren't looking terribly healthy. So sadly, I think Class 1 has got its challenges ahead. But GT Convergence, what say you, MP? My guess here, Sam, and I know if we look down the road just a little bit in our questions, I believe our pal Derus Lar, a guy in a grumpy bear suit, who says, which do you think is a greater obstacle to GTE and GT3 Convergence? Technical regs or the business models? Uh, GT3 is focused on customer racing with some factory-backed but not factory-operated teams, while GTE is full factory operations with a little bit of customer sales. I think this is the greatest potential tipping point of these factory GT efforts bumping up a little bit, maybe actually spending less, believe it or not, to do LMDH. Granted, if we're talking internationally, you know, if we're talking this WEC type campaign, that's never going to be cheap. But if we're talking IMSA, yeah, (laughs) I think it's I think it's either a wash or maybe even a tiny bit less. And you get the top class, the one that wins overall, the one that gets the headlines for the overall win tends to get a little bit more television time. So I think we are at that place gents where this could very much very well force gte slash gt lamont to i don't know if go away is is where i'd push things but i would say i would not be surprised if lmdh has the subscription for manufacturers that i think it will have some of them currently in gte slash gtlm and this does start to grow and become the recognized smart way to go top class top promotions budget that can be afforded i do wonder if the future of gt racing is 
a more simplified customer-based thing. Hey, would Porsche still be involved if we're talking GT3? Absolutely. (laughs) That's a big, big profit model for them. And I think we could see a lot of manufacturers say, okay, so this kind of weird GTE slash GTLM thing in terms of a formula, maybe we do go GT3-ish. And I realize that Stefan Rattel, SRO, an organization that is not uh, owned by uh, anyone other than him, is the, the rights holder to the GT3 formula. I don't know if how international lawsuits work, Graham, but I would say that <laughs> if the ACO, IMSA, Usually and the FIA like <laughs> wanted to come up with a GT star, you know, uh, I don't know, something that more or less just apes, just mimics the GT3 model and formula and says, that's our new thing. And it's all customer based. And it's, you know, maybe there's a pro angle possibly, but certainly primarily a pro and customer sales type routine. Uh, I just have to believe that's where we're going because it sure seems like we're not overloading GTE slash GTLM right now uh, with manufacturers. So give manufacturers a reason to make a profit. They're going to jump in GTE slash GTLM. That's not a place where they're profiting. Uh, I'll add one further thing, by the way, to the mix on that front. Of those five manufacturers that are currently in the GTE, GTLM marketplace, two of them, uh, those being Ferrari and Aston Martin, have cars that can race in both. Uh, There are conversion kits available for both. So if you've actually got yourself a Ferrari 488 GTE, it can be converted pretty simply to be uh, a GT3 car, and the same applies to the latest version of the Aston Martin Vantage. Not tiny money, but neither are you throwing away a perfectly serviceable GTE car should things change. Uh, I hope the way forward is that we can look forward to another of those fantastic press conferences, this time with the same five people we had uh, at Daytona, plus Stefan Rattel, because what he's done with GT3 is pretty darn marvellous. Uh, it would be good to see him welcome back into the fold as a full-time member of it. Let's see what that does to the sustainability of the global products we've got. Uh, A slightly controversial view of endurance racing right now is, which is there's a little bit too much of it. Um, And I would welcome the opportunity to see better, more fulsome grids with more investment from the biggest teams and the biggest names around in the automotive world and in racing in marginally fewer races, I think would be a very, very good thing. So let's wait and see. Is that number three? Did we Um, hit the BOP limit there? You know what? If, If I had that kind of that fairy godmother came and give me three wishes right now in racing terms, that would be one of them is let's get GT conversions together. Let's have something that's going to be sustainable for a sensible period of time. And in my mind, that's three to five years. Um, and let's move forward uh, with everybody around the table making sensible decisions. Uh, it doesn't mean to say you can't do your own thing as well. It should mean that actually everybody's acting in the best interest of the, of the, the wider motorsport world rather than just one single product. Should we go ahead and reveal the future regulation is going to be <laughs> VDV GT. That's what it is. Wix. <laughs> Hashtag breaking exclusive scoop here on the whatever the heck this show is brought to you by two morons yapping on a Sunday. Should we? 
should we move on, mate? Should we, we jump should. classes? All right, let's do that. Where are we going to go? Well, let's see. Well, let's go to IMSA. Go to we IMSA. A, yeah, go and we're going to have a ton here. So uh, why don't we rock on with IMSA, my man? Then we'll move on to your Weck Asm Elms awesome. ACO, and then we'll close with a little bit of general and fun as we start to wind down. I'm going to start flinging them at you traditionally as I do like a frenzied chimpanzee. Uh, John C. Webb from Facebook says, with low car counts looming this year, why not open up the top level of IMSA events to GT4 cars? Better yet, he says vintage cars. I'd like to see a 333 SP mixing it up with today's best. Mm, Okay. I love that, Uh, except for it wouldn't work. But, you know, I do like the idea of, of vintage IMSA prototypes and such and GT cars intermingling with the current cars. I don't know if the series would love the fact that depending on which of those models uh, were brought, they might be the overall winners and uh, they might stack the podium. Um, Well, need to answer this quickly and just factually, the entries for the 24 hours of Daytona Low, obviously, we know that. Nobody was happy with that. I would not say that that is going to be a problem for the rest of the season, though. Everything I keep hearing is that the overall entry numbers for Daytona are going to be pretty darn close to what IMSA has for the full season, which is a really, that would be a wonderful thing. So there's that. If we're talking, if this were to happen, if IMSA were to see in mid-December, when they get all their entries in for the 2021 Rolex 24, that boy, we're down again on car count. Throwing GT4 cars out there is not the solution. It just, it's not. <laughs> They're too slow. The yep. formula as laid out is if we think GTD is pro am, GT4 is extremely pro am. We don't have many drivers, Graham, these days in GTD. Uh, where we say, boy, you're you're marginal in terms of competence and experience to be out there for 24 hours with Juan Montoya carving you up and whomever else going by at a million miles an hour. If we're talking GT4, a training category, uh, obviously we're ignoring the pros who are doing the, the teaching and educating, but it's their co-drivers. Yeah, uh, in many cases, they're, in many cases, yeah. those GT4 the am and the pro am relationship are never meant to be in the weather tech championship because they do not have the competence to be there. So it takes too many folks whose competency is too low in cars that are too slow. And we have the 24 hours of red and yellow flags. So I totally get the idea behind how do we get the car counts up? It's just not with a training category, unfortunately. Well, there's, there's one area where I think we are going to see a boost in car counts moving forward, and that's LMP2, and there's two reasons for that. One is IMSA definitely got their act together in terms of the way they, they changed it with the, the bronze uh, drivers this year. They were unlucky that the initial seven car entry for Daytona came down to five. I think we will see at least one of those two additional cars at some points this season. But LMP2 in the new world of LMDH is set for a boost simply because LMDH with a lot of factory interest, which is where we expect it to go, 
is going to be somewhere where young drivers are going to want to be. And where do you show off your skills to the teams and the manufacturers uh, in LMDH? The answer is LMP2. Uh, I think we are set to see a pretty golden age in LMP2 moving forward, should the new era at the top actually make it happen as well. So watch for that in the next couple of years. I think we're going to start to see some real young talents looking for some bronze drivers to help uh, help the package come together and to, to meet the rule book. But I expect CLMP2 start to blossom in IMSA as well as what we're already seeing. More on that, by the way, this week um, on uh, Delhi Sports Car uh, in Europe, uh, where we're going to see an extraordinary number of LMP2 cars racing this year. There we go. What else do you have for us in IMSA, my friend? <laughs> Well, this is where I should have actually looked ahead, shouldn't I? Because Daniel Summerskill has basically said, why is LMP2 so unpopular, IMSA, uh, when it's so popular the WC, ELMS, and Asia Le Mans series? Are they running at reduced power IMSA to keep them behind DPI? Will this change under convergence? I would, before we get into this, uh, query whether or not it's been proved to be that popular the WEC. Asia Le Mans series beginning to blossom, but WEC has been at, I think if not minimal levels, certainly not very, very sustainable levels, seven or eight cars um, is okay, but it's certainly not booming. ELMS, absolutely. 20-plus cars uh, for the coming year, I'm certain of that. Uh, but what do you reckon, MP, about uh, the choices that have been made by teams at IMSA? This is one that makes me scratch my old head as well, Daniel. Uh, the reason to come and play having folks spending money committing to do this that would normally or <clears throat> maybe already part of a full-season ELMS, WEC, whatever program, you know, all it takes is Jackie Chan, the proverbial Jackie Chan, JD, uh, JDDC, JCDC, ACDC, uh, to opt in with two cars. Uh, all it takes is an inter-Europol. All it takes is a Zach Brown and Richard Dean uh, with a couple of United Autosport entries, and this looks wonderful. I don't know why they did not. I don't know if there was a specific boo on you, you suck, we're not coming, or if, again, this is just something where for this year it did not work out, but we will see them back next. I would say that despite not having an intelligent answer for your question, which is one of the trademarks here on the Weekend Sports Cars because of me, I am confident in saying this will be addressed heavily between now and probably summer with IMSA speaking to those teams saying, Hey, what can we do to help get you over here? I would also think that in this renewed fortified convergence thing taking place that IMSA will probably rely heavily on Pierre Fion on Gerard Nouveau and whatnot to say, Hey guys, so since we're really going to be playing together heavily here shortly, can you help us kind of get more of your people to come back over here and, you know, that's a great way to build on this, right, Graham? We know that there's a coming together here in the future, little ways out. How do we help really start fostering this back and forth, let's cross the Atlantic and uh, support one other type thing by bumping up car counts uh, prior to uh, Convergence actually getting its formal launch? So I'm uh, guessing could- Daniel Imps is going to uh, reach out and ask for help to fix this. I, I tend to agree with you. There, there, one complication, by the way, for the WEC side is that I do like to be beside the WEC side. Um, the is the fact that some of those those cars are still on ships coming back from the Asian races last year, obviously due later this month at Kota. 
Um, and uh, by the way, to answer the question that a couple of you have asked me uh, privately and publicly, um, no, I won't be at COTA. I've got uh, uh, two other engagements, one professional, one very personal. Uh, it's one of the reasons I won't be featuring on Twist next week, uh, off on vacation with my lovely wife for a significant birthday. But uh, So I will be featuring with the Asian Le Mans series for those two weeks. But the, those cars still en route back via Europe in some cases and onto the United States. But you're right. It's again, yes, it's another complication with calendars, but it's also an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity to give a little bit of extra to those WC teams, an opportunity to add, if they've got the commercial punch to do it, uh, to add another extraordinary race to uh, the LMP2 calendar for their customers. Uh, and not to say, by the way, it has to be the same customers that are racing all season. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see a credible um, LMP2 grid. It's not to say the five cars that were there for Daytona weren't. There were some really excellent um, uh, examples of the way these guys should go racing. And hats off, by the way, to Ben Keating. I know it didn't go his way overnight, but what a hell of a stint or two he put in at the start of that race. You know, Graham, I um, would say even more good on his PR1 Matheson motorsports team yeah, yeah. for yeah. sneaking a Rebellion R13 in <laughs> an L- an Areca LMP1 car in for Ben to drive in the opening stints. And then somehow, magic, hocus-pocus, during a pit stop, poof. I think there was. Didn't, you, didn't that happen during one of the – when Ben climbed out of the car, there was just this big cloud of white smoke all of a sudden, and magically the P2 <laughs> car appeared. Um, yeah, I, I spoke with Ben about that, and I was just like, buddy, what happened? Because based on the lap times, you were not in, L, in an LMP2 car. So anyway, so good on him. It was, was, so it was excellent stuff. I think the other thing to add here, by the way, is I have spoken to a number of the teams and some of the ones you name-checked. The move to separate the two classes uh, from one prototype class to DPI and LMP2 absolutely 100% made a difference to some of the big uh, P2 teams in Europe. having the opportunity with star-studded casts in many cases to run for the overall win at Daytona and a class win simply wasn't the level of appeal they were looking for for the dollar spend they would have to make to add that pro- that part to the program. I think that is probably not going to be on the table, but it would be interesting to see what uh, what John Doonan and the crew could actually bring to the party and how much help they get from the ACO and the WEC in helping that along. I'd love to see it, love to see that. Where do we go next with IMSA, my friend? Let's have a crack at Daniel Summersgill. Who? What did you think of the Corvette racing performance during the Rolex 24 Hours? Do you think the C8R met or exceeded expectations at this stage in its development? Stunning looking, looking car, great sounding car, very different sounding car. And we had the opportunity, of course, the in-car... Uh, in fact, it was actually external to it, wasn't it? The uh, the uh, onboard audio that you posted just before uh, the race weekend got underway, MP. But uh, what did you think of the uh, the C8R, and for that matter, the new R8, uh, the new Porsche RSR debuts in IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship? Yes, an out car audio, not an in car audio, an out car audio feature, which has become the most popular, most downloaded, most listened to podcast in history on our little show um really wow 100 percent. oh it it, it <laughs> yeah record traffic uh for the first time we had more than three hundred thousand downloads 
uh, for the month of January. Uh, in any month, we broke the three previous record was about 250,000 downloads. And yeah, we broke that record thanks to that plus the former C8R in-car audio that I'd captured. So yeah, folks, quite interested. Daniel, I think the Corvette racing team should be incredibly proud of themselves for my mental marker of what I thought they would do and what they would achieve. They nailed it. Cars were very competitive, were not front-running, were podium-ish in pace, and that's all I would expect from them in their first outing in a competitive motor race where scores are kept. I mean, that to me, I thought was pretty phenomenal. We also have to be aware that IMSA and I think most series that use balance of performance, they tend to be a little cautious when a new model is being introduced in competition. So I was never expecting the C8Rs to be front-running, vying for a win, simply because that pretty much never happens based on the technical regulation side. Not saying that IMSA intentionally did things to ruin their potential to win, but since a car is new and they do not have ample data, tend to see series be a little bit safe. Uh, You do not want something new showing up, blowing out the other cars that have been there for a little while, at least based on the amount of arguments and acrimony and we're going to kill you. Uh, You don't want the other manufacturers showing up with, uh, with torches and pitchforks. So fell exactly in line with what I thought was going to happen. They had some reliability issues also expected. This is just, this is the game, man. I thought it absolutely nailed uh, what they should have been able to do and what they actually ended up doing is spot on. Also, the next question from our pal Jerry Suddeth says, how would you grade the IMSA debuts of that uh, Porsche RSR and the Corvettes? Obviously, we've got the Corvette side, Jerry. The Porsche, I thought, was wonderful. Granted, IMSA debut, as you know, but this is a car that has run now multiple times in the WEC, this 2.0 version of the 911 RSR. Main takeaway here from Daytona is if we do win that lottery and Goodwin Pruitt Motorsports um, hashtag racy McRaceface racing, as James Hinchcliffe coined here in a recent episode of the Week in IndyCar, when we win that lottery and we decide to enter next year's Rolex 24, we are begging Jens Marquardt and Bobby Rahal to let us have a third m8 gt3 bmw because not only having won the race two years in a row all you had to do was look at the in car my friend and say wow look at the infield oh boy that 911 rsr i mean this is almost getting pornographic it's so far up the backside of that bmw (laughs) and then they get on to a long straight portion of road where Turning is not required. And the for the first time, friends and lovers of sports car racing and the biggest sports car on the planet would get small. That I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> the only time we can accuse the BMW M8 GTE of being small is from the in-car cameras of the two factory Porsches at Daytona when they would climb out of the infield and onto the banking and it goes from being filling the entire frame to smaller and smaller 
th- because I think we can be we can be thankful, can't we, that there wasn't an in-car mic in that Porsche. What because the it would, it, yeah. would, it would not certainly not have been family viewing. Um, so by the way, I understand completely why that happened. Everybody's been talking about being BOP, blah, blah. No, it's if you look carefully on the BMW, you can see the, the evidence of this one. It's a franchise uh, deal with the people who make the Fast and Furious movies. It's got that 32-speed gearbox in it. That's and NAS. Yeah, it's got the NAS button on the on the... <laughs> manual gear shift that isn't there yeah absolutely i mean this is kidding aside jerry the porsches were phenomenal when we go to sebring if we were to take what took if we were to take the cars directly from daytona straight to sebring uh, while i realize that there are some long straight very long straights at sebring uh, i don't think there's any question that porsche wins that race with the fact that Daytona is just so much of a speed drone, just droning away at top speed, uh, straight line acceleration. That is something we've seen two years in a row, BOP-wise, where the BMWs have an advantage. Now, I'll actually, rare, for a rarity here, Graham, defend BOP and IMSA in this case. The M8, for its size and for what it is, which we know and we kid about, the one thing that IMSA can do to balance this car, which is the one that sticks out as the one non-air quote supercar in the GTE slash GTLM field, is give it more power. It's just a big vehicle by comparison. It has a lot of air to push out of the way to make speed. The one way to compensate, because you can't make it crazy light because it's already a large vehicle, there's only so many things that the series could do to try and help it is to give it ample power. And what did we see time and time again? And Earl Bamber and Nick Tandy, so on and so forth, just murdering the back of that M8 or whichever M8 they were behind, just murdering the back of the thing. They were so close through the twisty bits. But the moment it got pointed in a straight line, it just pulled away by a number of car lengths. At Daytona, that's going to win you the race. So I don't know what IMSA does next year because it was a wonderful back and forth, right? It really was, oh, are they going to get them this lap? Is the Porsche going to get ahead? And, you know, did get by on a couple of occasions, usually when traffic intervened. But on straight pace, using this year's BOP, even last year's, BMW is going to win this race every year going forward because of this competitive compensation that's made due to its size. Um, I would say I would expect our friends at Porsche to be in IMSA's ear very heavily saying, hey, you know that opening race of yours that's the biggest one of the year and the most prestigious? Sebring, obviously, prestigious as well, but this is the only 24-hour race on the calendar. Um, We don't like losing that because we simply cannot keep up in a straight line. And since you all dictate who goes how fast in a straight line, come on, man. So tough one but i would say no question about the quality of the uh, porsche 911 rsr and its imsa debut jerry it was awesome just felled by a rival whose very special bop ended up being the uh, the true magic sauce at daytona Final question for now in our uh, IMSA hot hits. Uh, Holger Oppelt from Facebook says, During and after Daytona, you could hear teams and drivers, of course, complaining about BOP. We get reference to that, actually, in our first work, Elms Echo uh, question as well. We might just merge the two. 
Um, in some cases, this may be justified, e.g. at Rizzi. Their car was packed with champions and multiple race winners, but just not able to go to the GTLM pace. Does IMSA consider in-race adjustments at BOP for such cases, or why didn't they? Uh, especially during a 24-hour race, they should have some options. Recall this, thanks to your uh, Inside the Sports Car Paddock episode with Jeff Brown on the same topic. Uh, what do you reckon on Holger's point here? I'm not sure what the series could do in race to make adjustments here. It, w- it would have to be electronic for turbocharged cars, but for those that are naturally aspirated, I'm not totally clear on what might happen. Granted, the Reese Ferrari in, in uh, being raised here, Holger, one that is turbocharged, but if we're talking this happened to be a, a vehicle that was not, well, wait. Ballast is something that uh, could be removed during a race, but that is something that is bolted into the car, not easily or quickly removed, and is often placed in different locations throughout the car. So you take some away while it would be a lighter vehicle. Uh, the implications on chassis balance and tire consumption could indeed change in a negative direction. So that wouldn't necessarily work. The other angle is... Air, so air restrictors, an air restrictor change. That takes minutes. Uh, Getting to them, first of all, then unbolting whatever you need to unbolt to get to them, even for a car that has overhead air intakes. That takes a couple of minutes to get a very specific tool that goes in place to loosen and then unscrew the air restrictors, slide those out, put the other ones in. We're talking minutes So other than some form of wireless transmission to the car from the series that allowed its, say, wastegate control to modify boost pressure, I'm struggling to think of how that might be done in a timely fashion during a race. So I think that might be a bit of a non-starter. On the Ferrari side, after seeing the BOP that came out, after the Roar Graham, I texted Reese, Reese's well-known race engineer, Rick Mayer, and just said, brother, sorry. <laughs> Again, it's not my BOP. I just saw it. I was like, oh, man, there's one Ferrari in GT11, and they just got killed. And, yeah, he basically replied. It's like, yep, seventh place is going to be awesome. Um, and granted, while they were there were stages where they were very competitive because they have a phenomenal driver lineup, they had to drive that car to within an inch of its life to be competitive. I know you. some might think, well, isn't that what you should be doing at all times? Yes, but based upon BOP, not every team needs to or has to or does drive a car to within an inch of its life because it can make front-running leading speed without that, necessi- without that being a necessity. For others on the wrong end of the uh, BOP formula, for whichever race, those are the ones who tend to get out of the car just looking like they spent about five days in a sauna and <laughs> cannot hold their arms up. You, you, they have to be poured out of the car because they do not have any strength left in their bodies. So, yeah, a little bit unfortunate. I don't know how that was arrived at. I will throw this in, though, Graham, to close this topic and IMSA and move on to your WEC, Asim Elms, ACO. There are some other decisions made on BOP for the race that really did stand out as, whoa, what is going on here? 
you know, Acura with their GT3 cars. I believe they had both weight added and power taken away, right? I mean, all the only thing they didn't have was someone just kicking them in the nuts. And you go, whoa, what's happening there? There were a couple of cars that'd, that... would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Kicking the nuts. You know, uh, right heights, weights, kicking the nuts. Uh, there are a couple, not many, but there were a couple of cars where you could just look at the BOP and go, ooh, wow, they got hit hard. And maybe I don't see some sort of crazy lap time shown during the roar to lead to that, right? There's, again, if one manufacturer is clearly faster than everybody else and you see subsequent BOP for the race, Graham, that pulls them back, you go, that adds up, I understand. One or two instances where you go, huh, I don't know if I saw that front-running pace, and yet they got just wiped out with BOP. Well, then I start to hear, despite renewed efforts by the series to really, truly govern everything and make sure no one gets past them and pulls any monkey business, there's still a lot of monkey business going on (laughs) during the uh, the roar, uh, the qualifying air quote race that they use uh, there, that's really where they're meant to see the cars in their purest form. Start to hear, you know, uh, rumblings of, yeah, so that car went out for the half hour qualifying session uh, with the car laden with a completely full fuel tank. Well, there's no reason to do that. <laughs> the cars won't be on track long enough to burn half of that fuel cell or half of what's in that fuel cell. Hmm. So if you were trying to go out and give IMSA the purest representation of your car's speed so they could set an accurate BOP for the race and you overfill your fuel tank by an exceptional amount of of liquid, of weight, maybe you're not actually trying to give them an accurate representation so it's some of those things where I'm not saying that lines up grain with which manufacturer got hit hardest and so on and so forth. But I did hear that, yeah, there was still some monkey business going on where setting a truly accurate BOP for a couple of cars might have been hard based on the attempts to circumvent uh, the accurate information being delivered from all of its sensors and whatnot, where you go, oh, okay, well, yeah, well, of course your car is going to be slow and qualifying because you made it slow because you filled the thing full of fuel or over-ballasted the car or, 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 or. So that's still going on. I don't know how IMSA gets rid of that. I don't know how IMSA does something to make sure that the teams and manufacturers just do not give them uh, tainted data to try and game the system and get a over-advantaged BOP for the race, but that did take place at the Roar. And uh, that's maybe why some teams did not have a super happy fun Rolex 24. Speaking of super happy fun, though, Graham Goodwin, as we (laughs) begin the coast down here, we're going to move to your beloved Weck as Aslam Elms Aiko. And we're going to go with Garen Batten, who says... Question for both WAC and IMSA sections. Is James Collado the modern-day sports car equivalent of Nigel Mansell? He says every single in-race interview, he states that the Ferrari BOP means they have no chance on pace, and he always, always paints a picture that the world's against them getting a result, yet his record is brilliant. Perhaps suggest he should grow a mustache. Says love everything you do, gents. Garen, I mean, that's I don't know if we... 
do the question of the week. You win question of the week, though, brother. That's so oh, yeah. awesome. Well, let me, let me tell you, oddly enough, flew back uh, on the same flight as James uh, to the UK. Was he complaining uh, the plane was too slow and that they actually uh, slowed it, it down because of him and there's no way you guys I could think win? It was, the servicing club class was apparently a lot slower than what we got in premium economy. Uh, but um, he does have a tendency to look at the kind of bleaker side of life as far as BOP is concerned. He did add this, by the way, that the post-race analysis they made um, of the BOP for the Rizzi Ferrari meant that to get to the lap times that were being pu- uh, pumped out by the cars that were leading, they would have needed 190 extra horsepower that they actually had in that Ferrari. That was the, apparently the, um, the calculation. Look, there are drivers, I could name a number of them, that do tend to get a bit gloomy about uh, balanced performance. Uh, if you were to ask um, Stephen Kilby this question, he would name check one of my favourite drivers at the moment, Phil Keane, who's a, a Lamborghini factory driver, has been around for a long time. Uh, Phil may or may not have another career in a white driving suit, uh, allegedly. Uh, but uh, Phil habitually will bitch about balance of performance before then going out and destroying the field is Lamborghini Huracan. Um, it, it does get a bit old, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why, for instance, GT3 racing sometimes can be a bit challenging from the, uh, a, sport, uh, a sports car reporter's point of view because BOP tends to be the only thing that, uh, generally speaking, some of the guys will want to talk about. But uh, James, God bless him, a driver of absolutely unworldly talents. But, uh, yeah, I'm afraid you, you are quite right that uh, at times his area of conversation uh, does tend to focus around that. Not had the best of times with that Ferrari. The, we have actually seen uh, rather too much by way of unreliability taking away from some um, some uh, performances that deserved better. Uh, so at times he, and um, I'll also put up the case for the prosecution at times, Sam Bird in his time there. Sam is a, a lovely, lovely guy, but did get to the stage where at times it was quite difficult to have a cheerful conversation with them. I've seen it from others. I can re- recall a time before we got to the current generation of Porsches where Ricard Leitz, a very cheery man, and Mark Lieb, one of my all-time favorite drivers, Sweetheart. were tricky to talk to. Absolutely. It's tricky to talk to because they were just so down about where they were in, in, in terms of uh, competitiveness with the package they had back in the GT3 RSR uh, days in uh, in GTE. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. James, love you dearly. You are a marvellous driver. Please, please, can we talk about something other than BOP? Oh, and for those who were not fortunate, and I do mean fortunate enough to grow up, in the Red 5 era, Nigel Mansell. This is a guy who could win the race by a mile, climb out of the car, and need to be consoled. Just, (laughs) right? I mean, (laughs) call call the Pope. We need to get the Pope in here. We need to just see if we can walk Nigel back off the ledge. He he can find no reason to go on living. Um, The fact that someone has burdened him, with having to step up onto the top step of a podium, hold a bottle of champagne, open it and shake it back and forth rigorously, would like to know when and where Satan intervened in his life and has decided to kill him with this burden. Just phenomenal. And that's on 
the best days. Oh, good <laughs> Lord. The days he finished P2, it is truly get the popcorn made, pull up a, yep. pull up a chair, and buckle in. The, Wrestle the shotgun from him. Oh, oh, again, I mean, he's instantly, you know, trying to grab Morrissey albums and keep the <laughs> razor blades away with him because he has to go on, you know, 24-hour suicide prevention. And I'm obviously being a bit of a dick here, but it, I'm I'm not too far from expressing reality where you go, wow, any single, oh my God, all right, well, I guess we need to take care of the kids since my wife decided to give birth to them, whatever. Uh, just the guy could find the bad in anything. Puppies. I mean, <laughs> why, how has this creature been allowed to live? Who would think of putting sugar and cream and flavor together, putting it in the freezer and expecting someone to want to eat ice cream? How dare you, human race? I, I have to say, I mean, having been a fan of his in period, uh, to then deal with Nigel in the paddock, I mean, in particular when he was racing and his sons were racing in sports car racing over that brief period of time, was a whole different world, a whole different world and i've seen uh, every side of nigel i've saw, i've seen him professionally away from the racetrack with some of the stuff he was doing uh, with young drivers and driver safety absolutely uh, peerless in terms of his ability to hold that audience and to speak in a, a, a fantastic way about really truly serious subjects but my god yeah it really was it, it was it was Please warn the pharmacies within a 50-mile radius that you should not serve this bloke with a moustache. It was all of that. Um, I got. A, I think one of the grumpiest responses to a to – not even a question. It was me popping in at the Hungara ring uh, where we had an extraordinary race where the P2 cars, for whatever reason, were just more competitive than the P1s that, 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 uh, that race. We had the top seven cars in a Le Mans series race were all P2 cars. The eighth car home was the winner in LMP1, and it was two of his sons aboard that car. Leo and Greg uh, aboard a Zytec, if I remember rightly. And they'd had a tough old season. It was by far the best result they'd had. I popped by, actually not to see Nigel, but to see the boys to say, well done, guys. You know, and I wasn't, you know, you'd like to be on the top step of the podium sure. overall. And I got my head bitten off. Really? Absolutely. Oh, God, yeah, it was brutal. You know, I think there's, there's you know, uh, there's, I think both my ears are still there. Uh, and I can't remember in paddock, but absolutely bitten off. But um, you Was know, there the any particular re I mean, I'm just trying to think of any justification for that. Or is just, it just grumpy. Yeah. Grumpy. I think I think it was the fact they were in the P1 car. It should have won overall. It, it just didn't strike a racing one that event. And uh, the first time a P2 car had actually won overall in an ACO rules event at that stage. But, yeah, a man of many sides, um, no real shades of grey, uh, very much black and white, uh, nice black, Nigel. Mostly black. That's Not a lot of white. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there you go. But, uh, no, please, James, don't do it. Don't grow the moustache. Don't become Nigel eyebrows though big bushy eyebrows that that might be the nod to a good old nige well we're actually gonna tighten up our weck asm elms echo contributions this week because there are a number that are relatively similar it was all conversions yes yeah we're gonna close this with malcolm scopes 
says Graham, with the emergence of Lawrence Stroll's investment in Aston Martin and the impending separation from the Red Bull Formula One team, what are your early thoughts on its impact on its sports car programs, especially the Valkyrie hypercar? Um, I'm at the point where uh, I love Aston Martin as a brand a bit. So I think their road cars are beautiful. There's some wonderful people involved in those programs, but they do need now to make it clear what's going on. The Valkyrie road car program, as we said earlier in the in the, uh, in the show, has been reinforced by the uh, the investment from Lawrence Stroll and the other investors. Not all that funding has come from Lawrence Stroll. In fact, not even the majority. But he now becomes uh, effectively, I believe, executive chairman, takes a 17 or 16.7% stake in the business. But they do now need to make it clear because otherwise it just becomes a bit of a boat anchor. I hope they remain active in sports car racing at the very highest level. I think the opportunity is there for them to do that. And from Lauren Stroll's point of view, let's be blunt, the chances of his his son, who does have talent, um, but just not as much talent as I think he'd like, uh, the chances for him to have a career in motorsports are far more likely in a rejuvenated sports car paddock than it ever will be in Formula One with or without his dad's name above the door. So what do I expect to happen? I think we are going to hear something relatively soon about the shape of that program. What do I hope it is? I hope it's realistic. I don't actually care what it is. I hope it's realistic and I hope it's competitive because that's a brand that needs to be in sports car racing. If there's going to be a golden age, it will feel just that little bit less golden if the words Aston and Martin aren't on that entry list. I won't reveal who it was, Graham, but I will share that I was texting back and forth yesterday with a dear friend, a fairly well-known driver of international repute and success who said that he would love nothing more than to return to racing next year at the Bathurst 12 hour and the brand Aston Martin came up. And so is it Chris, Christoph Boucher? All right. You got me, man. He, a good old, uh, the Boosh, uh, Nailed the it. Boosh asked me to, <laughs> the mighty <laughs> Boosh asked me to, uh, not, you know, out him publicly, but I guess, uh, no choice. Yes, it was Boosh. Um, I don't know if that's going to go anywhere. I would love to write one of them good old word stories that says it's going to happen. But yeah, when I, when I heard that and was told that I was like, Oh, this could be amazing. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well I'm going to use it. I'm going to do it. I'm free. You're only limited to three. I'm unlimited. Let's wait and see. <laughs> Let's wait and see. Let's go to Hegeneral. I am going. Uh, yes, sir. That's right. I could ask you the first question. Well, actually, I was going to just grab both of them quickly because I think I can cover them off quickly. First is from our pal again, Jacob Bame, asking about last week's Inside the Sports Car Paddock segment with Jeff Brown, referring to ballast being something that, as we discussed just a little while ago, can be placed in different spots on cars. He asks, can you actually move them around during a weekend? which I also just discussed about the in-race penalty, either BOP penalty or removal adjustments and such. At least as I understand, Jacob, we're talking IMSA and I think the ACO, I don't recall the ACO mandating where ballast must be placed. So I do believe just meeting the minimum weight rule is the only things that team have, teams have to do if they 
place the ballast to do so in locations that are obviously agreed upon and safe, I believe it's up to them to choose where to put it. So uh, I don't believe that there's anything limiting teams from throughout a weekend saying, hey, as you might note here, maybe we want to take that 10 kilos of ballast from beneath the gearbox and move it forward or side to side or whatever it might be. Uh, nothing that I know of to prevent that and nothing that I know of that says that doesn't happen and hasn't been happening for quite a while. Go to Adam Smith here as well, Graham, on our very quick tour, a quick stop in Hagenerau. Adam Smith, do you see a situation where GTE am and maybe GTE drop uh, in the, let's see, the wording here is a little tough, so I'm trying to put the sentence together here. Do you see a situation where GTE am and maybe GTE drop uh, off, I think is what you meant to say, the WC altogether, leaving the SRO as the main organizers of GT racing outside the U.S.? No, not in any way, shape, or form ever. Uh, This is something that's probably not a super secret, Adam. I love prototypes. I do love GT cars as well, but prototypes are my heart when it comes to sports car racing. I am regularly reminded by sports car fans that there's a large segment as well that could not give a flying fart about prototypes. And when they think sports cars, when they watch sports cars, when they pay to see sports cars go racing, it's because of GTs. So how's this? If the ACO, WEC, IMSA were to ever get to a place where LMDH, hypercar, whatever it is, prototypes were so popular where GT class was not needed and they opted to push GTs out altogether, leaving the SRO as the main purveyor, um, I would say that their series is probably going to struggle heavily. Also noting that auto manufacturers who might choose to play in prototypes still tend to like the GT stuff, as we referenced earlier, especially on the customer side. Selling GT cars, it's a pretty good profit model for the brands, even those who play in prototypes. So any series that would choose to take a blend of prototypes and GTs and strip the GTs from their offerings, I would say that is uh, destruction awaiting for them in terms of audience and also just manufacturer participation altogether. Add this bit to it. There was a the strand of conversation during the rounds of Daytona about exactly this, this GT split. We've traditionally, recently had something close to half and half between the prototypes and the GT cars. Imagine a moment on those fantasy internet lists you have in sports car racing. Let's say we get 10 uh, factories committing to LMDH. Plus, you know, it's more than a spattering of, uh, of privateer versions of those cars. Plus... A buoyant, I expect it to be buoyant LMP2 field. And then potentially, my guess would be a single GT class. And it might well have to be Pro-Am, bearing in mind the state of LMDH moving forward. Could you get to the stage where a manufacturer entry is actually turned down because they've got too many? That That's distinctly possible in the emerging world of uh, sports cars in the new era in the next half decade or so you know with something close to a dozen gt3 manufacturers albeit uh, overlapping with the potential lmdh manufacturers there's every possibility there might actually not be space for every manufacturer or every mark that wanted to go to the big races yeah, we'll um we'll know 
and we'll know, I think, remarkably quickly. Uh, the last one, mate, is absolutely for you, and it's for you for two reasons. Uh, one is because it's a question about a man that I have never met and uh, sadly now never will, and I've never spoken to and now sadly never will. But it comes from Dean Ackerman on Facebook. Marshall, do you have any cool John Andretti stories? Love the, the BMW GTP raced with David Hobbs, the rise with Jim Busby's Porsche 962s. Godspeed, John. Cancer continues to suck. It most certainly does. MP. Yeah, this one's hit me particularly hard. I say that just from a sharing standpoint, not a oh, woe is me standpoint. Obviously, John's amazing wife, son, family, cousins, uncles. Again, this is something that just for those of us on the outside who knew and loved John, this has hit really hard. No harder, though, than it has struck his family. Mentioned on, I think, the good old social media that outside of my affinity for John as a race car driver, uh, love for him as a person only grew in recent years as he announced his fight against colon cancer, which ultimately took him from us. And just the, they weren't frequent. So don't want to overstate this like every day we were waking up texting one another. It wasn't that at all. But just whether it was sending a text his way, how you doing, brother? You know, how's, how's the fight? Because, you know, you'd hear from mutual friends, oh, boy, John's really in the wars right now. You know, it's come back or whatever it would be. How you doing? What's, you know, how are things? Get a text back from him or something and, you know, would say tough, but you know, I'm not going to give up when he learned about my wife's uh, entry into the world of fighting cancer would get uh, texts from him. Very beautiful. Uh, how's your wife doing? Hey, just thinking about your wife. I'll be praying for her tonight. And again, I know that John Andretti's name is not, elevated as high in the sport as a Mario Andretti or a Michael Andretti. But this is someone that at least in North America is highly regarded, really held in a place of very special esteem as a race car driver, personality, and so on. So you know, that from John, at least for hashtag me personally, it meant something. And again, I, I could not possibly name all the people, whether it's just mechanics, drivers, team owners, journalists who've sent similar texts about my wife. But knowing that John, as well as someone who's should be the person receiving these notes of encouragement, that he would take the time to send them back, knowing that the wife of someone that he knows, even though he's never met her, <laughs> you know, would take the time to do that just says a lot about the man so that's what stands out most beyond the racing stuff mentioned here to close uh this episode working on a remembering john andretti podcast and i have captured a couple of interviews one with jim busby about that 1989 season Yesterday, I spoke with Dennis Reinbold, who was his entrant at uh, one of the, I think, 13 
Indy 500s that he competed in and the list of others who I need, I'm actually going to call as soon as we're done here, Graham. Uh, Kyle Petty is, is the next person I'm calling. Uh, Derek Walker, his uh, entrant in the 1990 IndyCar season with Porsche. Peter Barron uh, as well. Anders Crone, Davey Jones, a uh, friend of mine, Bones Borsier, who covered John back in his early formative days in, on dirt. Uh, in short track American oval racing and sprint cars and midgets and such um, number of other folks that I'm trying to connect with here just to bring some tales of his incredibly diverse and varied life as a race car driver to light in ways that uh, heck I should have done that years ago just because his life is so amazing in this sport <clears throat> consider this uh, went back Last night, uh, our nights tend to be a little bit late uh, with what my wife has you know, been dealing with now for 17 or 18 months. Um, There's some daily issues or complications that arise, and so things that can push our, our days and nights fairly late. So I uh, had one of those last night, and so I ended up, being up until about one forty-five or 2 a.m., and I spent, uh, while she was you know, looking after herself and such um, in the shower, spent from about midnight to 2 a.m., Graham, editing a the one visit John did to my Week in IndyCar show, uh, I think January of 2018. And so this is not too long after the announcement of his colon cancer. Keep in mind that by 2018, John had not driven an Indy car for seven or eight years. His last race, period, his last professional motor race was 2012. So John had not been in the cockpit for a while, but just wanted to have him on. Talk about the day's news. Uh, Dan Gurney had just passed. Lena Gade had been announced as James Hinchcliffe's race engineer. Danica Patrick had been announced and doing her farewell race and such. So thought it'd be cool to have John on to talk about some of the newsy stuff, but also to, as we do here, have fans send in their questions for John about his amazing life and career. And I'm so thankful that I did. So listening back to this episode a day or two ago, knowing how special it was, that we did have an op more than two hours, Graham, in recording with John, just got wandering all over the place. Said, well, I, I should, obviously we're going to give John some space here with this news coming down on Thursday, but this was really a magical episode because of him. And I said at the time to him, this is my favorite episode of the weekend in the car we've ever captured, right? It just is. Cause he was so beautiful and amazing and selfless and funny and forthright. And so listening back to it, I had to update that and say, it is still two years <laughs> later. We're almost four years into this podcast. It is still my favorite episode ever done. I also realized that this was recorded back then before I had more the newer, more modern recording equipment that I now have and some of the sound deadening and such. So 
the audio quality was not great. A little bit of a technical thing, too, with some mobile phones, some of the electronic frequencies taking place. I don't know exactly why or what, but with an audio recorder placed close to it, you can get a little bit of clicking, and, and it's called GSM. It's a GSM tone. So listening back to the audio here for the first time in two years or whatever it was, it's just really unhappy, Graham, with the sound quality. Now, I can't go back in time and make the original audio recording better, higher quality, but I said, you know what? What I don't want to do is share this because it just, it, it should have been taken more time. I should have spent more time producing it back in the day to really try and clean things up as much as I could. And I didn't. And it pissed, I pissed myself off for that. So I spent time last night from about 12 till 2 a.m. Or heck, I guess this morning, technically, going back and doing that and using a variety of, of filters and, and audio improvement tools to at least try and take out the little clicking and such. So the audio isn't great but it's not as bad as it was originally. I also cut out a lot of me from that interview and taken out the opening part, which is just the news portion and just go straight to the Q and a. And so I'm going to post that here probably tomorrow morning, just so folks can hear John in this, him just being his beautiful self talking about how's this? In 1988, John Andretti made his debut in a competitive one in the Indianapolis 500. Oh, but we're not done. A few weeks later, as a member of the Porsche factory team, John also made his debut at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in one of the iconic shell-liveried Porsche 962s, alongside his Uncle Mario and Cousin Michael. So here we are in a single year, speaking to his diversity, where he makes his Indy 500 debut, backs that up a few weeks later with 24-hour of Le Mans debut, never seen the joint, finishes sixth overall. And no, that's not enough for 1988 for John Andretti. He makes his Bathurst 1000 debut driving for Gary Rogers. Bathurst, Mount Panorama, La so- Circuit de la Sarthe, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, all in one year. And those were just his debuts. Didn't return to Le Mans, but we look to the other things that he did make. In 1993, he made his debut in the NHRA Drag Racing Series. In the top fuel category, for God's sake, the world's most insane motor racing vehicle. And he didn't just putter around. He'd never driven a dragster before, had no experience whatsoever, but got the invite to do it. So he did in his first ever round, knowing that if you're not familiar with drag racing, it's a knockout formula till you get down to the final stage and final round and whomever wins, wins the event in that class, his very first round in the NHRA in a 300-mile-an-hour top-fuel dragster. 
going up against the defending top field champion, <laughs> Joe, Amadio, Joe Amato. And he beat him! this makes no sense and so what does he do to follow that up he goes to nascar wins there wins the daytona 400 the uh, the summer classic driving for the legend that is kale yarborough he then moves the end of the decade to richard petty's team the king Wins one of the most takes one of the most legendary wins in NASCAR at Martinsville. Rocks up in the early two thousands at Watkins Glen in an orbit, racing Porsche with his dear friend Kyle Petty. Wins, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and on and on and on. Uh, his career, it, it is such a thing of beauty dean so uh, again you consider his debut for jim busby at daytona wins the rolex 24 overall and so on and so on he's just someone who from dirt racing sprints and midgets where he won to imsa gtp where he won to IndyCar where he won, to NASCAR where he won, to the NHRA while he did not win the an overall event, won multiple rounds against, you know, the sports best, having never done it before. Top six on his debut at Le Mans, won the Porsche Cup in 1989, best Porsche driver in the world. Taken straight over to Porsche's factory IndyCar program and on and on and on. Just someone who, when we think of Graham, when we think of the greats, the multi discipline greats, this person raced this, this person raced that, I can think of few, both modern and also the, the legends of the past who can claim to have done as much and as many different things as John Andretti and done them at the highest level. I think off-road racing, like a Baja 1000 type thing, I don't think he did that. Uh, Motorcycles, I don't believe. And again, I could be wrong. That's one of the things I love about John's career. Like the more you dig in, you're like, what? When did you do that? During this Week in IndyCar interview, Graham, find out that, oh, not only did he just race the short track midgets and sprint cars here in the U.S., which you knew about, oh, he also went down to Australia and did that one year. And I'm like, what? Where did that come from? Um, That's this guy's career. If it had wheels (laughs) and you could race it, he would show up and not just give a great account of himself, sometimes embarrass the established stars. And where this just l- leads to a lovely place, I mentioned if it has wheels. So in that week in IndyCar uh, appearance that John made, one listener asked, is there anything you didn't get a chance to drive and race that you really wanted to? And what was his answer? Unlimited hydroplane. <laughs> <laughs> and then the thing that pissed him off, he actually had that lined up. So he was going to, 
but one of his NASCAR sponsors got word and shut it down because they didn't want to risk him getting injured. But that's who John Andretti was. I, I'm fortunate to have interviewed or gotten to know so many of the folks that are just pillars of this sport and appreciate all the amazing different forms of racing they have, they have excelled in. John wasn't necessarily better than any of them, but I would say if we're looking for one person and how we might remember him, Graham, in our sport of motor racing, I would say John Andretti, possibly the finest example of any racing driver I've ever known when it comes to demonstrating passion for driving a motor racing car or boat or anything. I really cannot think of anyone who craved the opportunity to experience being behind the wheel of something and going fast and having fun and being rewarded. Every professional race car driver loves what they do. James Collado, possibly a little bit of a caveat there, but we're going to work on him and, you know, get him out of that Nigel Mansell territory. But every driver will tell you that they love racing. I don't know if any of them loved it more than John Andretti. And man, what a, what a hero of a person for all that he did behind the wheel, but even more for his choice to take his fight against colon cancer public to say in a forthright manner, I blame myself for not getting checked earlier and I have robbed my family of not being with them longer because of that and encouraging, imploring us in particular as men to have ourselves checked for colon cancer. The the hashtag campaign, check it for Andretti, directly as a result of him saying, I didn't do my job, and now I'm diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. This is a death sentence. I don't know when that death is going to come, but this is too far advanced for it to be beaten. So all I can do is implore you to make sure that you do not take away from your family. That's how John led the last four years of his life. And we love him for all that he did as a race car driver. I love him even more for being the person who's willing to say, let me be the example so that you all hopefully do not make the same mistake. That's, he, I don't know his exact height, Graham. He couldn't have been more than five foot six, five foot seven. That guy's a giant, just a true giant. Uh, bless you and bless him well for anybody that knew him terrible news this week um, great stuff MP uh, who doesn't love somebody loves what they do uh, and very clearly John Andretti was was one of us one of you and I think we're going to leave it there tonight uh, that was the weekend sports cars once again thank you to Cooper Tyres and to the Justice Brothers 
I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>